Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. Has this ever happened to you? There's a knock at your front door late at night. You open the door to find a messenger with a letter and a soggy burlap bag. You open the letter. It's news about a series of recent murders. You look inside the bag and find two human heads. What do you do? If you're the governor of South Carolina and it's January of 1745, you breathe a sigh of relief and say, thanks, I've been expecting these. Today we'll investigate the story of the heads of the two Toms. So make yourself comfortable and don't forget to tip the delivery boy. Last week, I introduced the story of a brutal crime that took place in mid-July 1744, when a pair of Nache, or Natchez Indians, attacked and murdered five to ten Catawba Indians as they slept after what was supposed to be a merry feast, but what was in reality a murderous trap. Governor James Glenn of South Carolina learned of the Indian murders a few days later and quickly intervened in an effort to prevent an escalation of violence that could potentially erupt into a frontier-wide bloodbath. He persuaded the Catawba chief to restrain his warriors and to allow Glenn time to obtain justice through a more diplomatic channel. The governor then hosted the Nache king at his home for a week and compelled him to disown the two murderers and to deliver them to the white man's government. On both fronts, Glenn succeeded in convincing the tribal leaders to remain calm and to let South Carolina's provincial government play the leading role in resolving this crisis. In reality, however, the government's role was quite passive. Glenn expected the Nache king and his people to locate apprehend, and hand over the culprits, at which time the government would simply convey the murderers, or their remains, to the Catawba. Having concluded these negotiations around the beginning of September 1744, the governor returned to his normal administrative duties, which included an ongoing war with our Spanish and French neighbors, and soon forgot all about the Indian matter. In the aftermath of the mass murder of July 1744, most of the small band of Nache Indians fled from their reservation near Four Hole Swamp, established in 1738, and dispersed southward into the frontier wilderness. By the end of autumn, the majority of the tribe were back in Colleton County, near the headwaters of the Ashapu River where they had originally settled about a decade earlier when they first arrived in South Carolina. The Nache may have enjoyed a small sense of security at that site, being more than 150 miles south of the Catawba Nation, but in fact, they had good reason to feel uneasy. Back in August, Governor Glenn had convinced the Catawba chief, whom he called the Little Warrior, to muzzle his warriors, and to give Glenn at least three months to apprehend the Nache murderers. If he could not deliver the culprits in that time frame, Glenn said he would step aside and to permit the little warrior, quote, to use the Nache as he thought proper, end quote. That three-month truce expired in late November, however, and the two murderers had not yet been found. 
as winter settled over the low country. At the end of 1744, the Nache camped in Colleton County maintained a vigilant watch for both their rogue kinsmen and for vengeful Catawba warriors. If this story were a made-for-TV movie, right about now the director would cut to a scene in the wilderness where we'd find the two murderers on the run, contemplating their predicament and planning their next move. We, the audience, would learn details about their motivations, their fears, and their intentions, and the plot would move forward in a traditional manner. But this is a real-life story, and, as a historian, I would much rather find authentic documentary evidence than fabricate details to suit a fictional scenario. Fortunately for us, there is an extant document that helps us to fill in the blanks. In late January 1745, the Nache King told the rest of this story to a white planter in Colleton County, Colonel John B., and John B. related the story in a letter to Governor James Glenn. The governor in Charleston read B.'s letter to his Council of Advisors, known as His Majesty's Council for South Carolina, and the clerk of that council transcribed B.'s letter into a manuscript journal that now resides at the South Carolina Department of Archives and History in Columbia. The story of the Nache Catawba murders in the summer of 1744 has been described by a number of historians over the years, but I haven't found any published sources that mention John B.'s 1745 letter to the governor. I've spent a lot of time in recent years reading through all of the surviving journals of His Majesty's Council, which are really chock full of interesting details, and I already had this story on my long list of topics to explore further. So, during a recent trip to the State Archive, I photographed the relevant manuscript pages from the 1745 Journal of His Majesty's Council for South Carolina in order to make this podcast. Rather than simply read John B.'s letter to you, I'm going to expand the story a bit and include a number of choice quotes from B.'s telling of the facts he learned directly from his Nache neighbors in Colleton County. On the 24th of January, 1745, a group of seven Nache men informed B that they had captured the two murderers, whom they called the Two Toms. Before we continue with their story, let's pause for a brief diversion into nomenclature. Think back to every Hollywood spaghetti western you've ever seen, films that usually include pretty awful depictions of Native American culture. In those movies, what noun did they use to signify an adult male Indian, the sort who usually galloped around on horseback with bow and arrows? Hollywood, as well as 19th century romantic literature, told us those young native men were called Braves, as in the modern baseball team, the Atlanta Braves, and Warriors, when they were perhaps a bit more experienced. But what did those native people call themselves? Here in South Carolina in 1745, John B. told us that the two Nachi murderers were called Toms. Were both men named Thomas? No, we don't know their given names. Rather, Tom is apparently the English translation of the Nache word used to describe an adult male, and perhaps specifically an important adult male. Why Tom? Tom? 
because a tom is an adult male turkey, as distinct from a juvenile jake or a female hen. Now, calling a big man a turkey is an insult in our modern culture, but it seems a fitting description if you've ever seen an adult male turkey puff out his chest, fan his majestic tail feathers, and strut proudly to defend his turf. The adult male wild turkey is, in fact, a proud, fierce, and powerful bird that commands respect among his fellow turkeys and the humans who hunt them. We may never know the proper names of the two Nache men who murdered several Catawba Indians in July of 1744, but we know that their people called them the Two Toms. The seven Nache leaders who arrived on John B.'s front porch on the 24th of January, 1745, told him how they captured the two Toms. Those two fellows who committed the murders, the Nache said, have been away from the rest of the tribe since they did that mischief last July. Where have they been since that time? Instead of retreating southward from the reservation with the rest of the tribe, who were living in fear of Catawba reprisals, the two murderers had moved northward, endeavoring to revenge themselves on another of the Catawbas that they had not an opportunity of killing when they committed that murder last summer. As I mentioned in last week's episode, we don't know the motivation behind the murder of five to ten Catawba in July of 1744. And so I think it's significant that after committing that crime, the Nachi assailants felt their business was still not finished. Whatever jealousy or anger drove them to hunt their supposed enemies, the two Toms found the Catawba nation on high alert, keeping up a vigilant watch for the murderous duo. Being unable to accomplish their end of tracking down and killing their human prey, the two Toms eventually turned southward to rejoin their families and to the rest of the Nachi band who were encamped above Ashapu Bridge. The modern-day bridge over the Ashapu River in Colleton County is exactly where it has been for the past three centuries, in the path of what we now call Highway 17. If you were driving south on Highway 17 in early 1745, heading from Charleston towards Beaufort, you would have seen the smoke rising from the Nachi campfires to your right as you passed over the Ashapu River Bridge. In the second week of January, 1745, about a fortnight before John B. became involved in this story, the two Toms cautiously appeared on the outskirts of the Nache camp. Rather than attempting to rejoin the main camp of their fellow tribesmen, the two Toms sat down at some distance from them in a camp by themselves, being very suspicious of being taken. Their extended families no doubt greeted them with expressions mixed with feelings of both love and revulsion, which the exiled warriors reciprocated with guarded salutations. A tenuous channel of communication opened between the two camps, allowing a few members of the tribe to visit the exiles. But the two Toms always kept on their guard when any of the others came into their camp. Through a series of conversations in mid-January, the fugitives learned that several months earlier, the Nache king had made a pact with the white people's government. 
their governor required the Nazi to apprehend and deliver up the two principals who had committed the horrid crimes last July in order to satisfy the Catawbas. And King Will had promised to do everything in his power to comply with the governor's demand. As proud warriors living by an ancient code of honor, the two Toms already knew to be wary of Catawba reprisals for their violent deeds. But now they learned of their king's plan to betray them to the white man. In the days after their reappearance in Colleton County, the Toms walked a fine line between trying to preserve their kinship with the Nache and keeping a vigil against potential acts of betrayal. Meanwhile, back at the main Nache camp, the tribal leaders debated and contrived several ways and methods to seize them. But the murderers were always so cautious and paranoid that the tribesmen feared for their collective safety. They realized that they could not possibly affect it, that is, capturing the murderers, without a great risk of their own lives. Having observed the murderers from a distance for several days, the Nache people felt assured that the two Toms would be so desperate as to defend themselves to the last extremity, never suffering their arms to be out of their hands or even sleeping when any others were near them. The king had promised the governor that he would deliver the murderers, and the governor had promised the Catawba the matter would be concluded within three months. After five quiet and unproductive months, it might be possible that Catawba warriors were stalking the defenseless Nache people at that very moment. By attempting to reunite with the tribe, the guilty men were endangering the lives of all of the Nache, and the time for deliberation was running out. Finally, after about two weeks of this uneasy truce between the tribe and the murderous Toms, the majority of the Nache leaders determined that it was better to kill the two Toms and to bring their heads to the governor than to run the risk of their doing more mischief or getting away and leaving the innocent to be a sacrifice to the Catawba, who the Nache expected would seek their own satisfaction if the principal offenders were not put to death. Sometime in late January 1745, the Nache tribal leaders proposed to the two Toms to come together as a group and to walk up the path to Jacksonboro, a village about seven miles to the east of their camp. The leaders explained that they needed to buy some things they wanted, and the only general store in that neighborhood was up the road in Jacksonboro. The two exiled Toms, no doubt suffering under a sleep-deprived state of anxious, lonely paranoia, agreed to walk up the road with seven of their tribesmen. The nine men set out on the morning of January 24th, walking eastward along a sandy, narrow road we now call Highway 17. Having crossed over Ashapoo Bridge and walked as far as Benjamin Godin's plantation on the way to Jacksonboro, the tribal leaders suddenly turned on the toms and shot them both down in the middle of the road most likely using pistols concealed in their long winter cloaks. Wasting no time to complete their awful business, the Nache men unsheathed some sort of blade, probably a weapon belonging to one of the Toms, and beheaded them and buried the bodies by the road. 
Immediately after finishing this gruesome business, the group of seven Nache men went directly to the nearby house of Colonel John B., where they displayed the freshly severed heads and recounted the entire affair. Brigadier John B. was a 37-year-old, well-respected rice planter in Colleton County who was undoubtedly familiar with the Nachi refugees living in the neighborhood. As a local militia captain, B. had led the first wave of white men to clash with the rebellious slaves who rose up near the Stono River in September of 1739. Promoted to colonel of the Colleton County Militia, B. again led his neighbors in the disastrous 1740 expedition launched by South Carolina and Georgia against the Spanish at St. Augustine. In short, John B. was a man familiar with violence and bloodshed, and the Nachi clearly felt comfortable in trusting him with both a confession of their murderous crime and the physical evidence of the bloody deed. The Nache men regarded Colonel B. as one of the principal white men of that neighborhood, and so they asked his opinion of what they had done and what they should further do in the affair. B. told the seven Nache leaders that he believed Governor Glenn would have been much better pleased had they delivered the two Toms up alive, as it would also be more satisfaction to the Catawbas. Since that scenario was no longer an option, however, the colonel opined that it was better they should be killed than to escape justice. The Nache men said they did not approve of the murder of the Catawba people, and they had done what lay in their power to do the Catawba justice in punishing the principal offenders. Colonel B. assured the Nache that he understood they had done what they could to take them alive, and he agreed that such a course of action could not have been accomplished without running too great a hazard of the two Toms doing even more mischief. In light of the circumstances, said Colonel B., the governor would surely approve of what they had done and would endeavor to satisfy the Catawbas. Colonel B. then advised the Nache to go down immediately with the heads to Charleston and to deliver them personally to Governor Glenn. The Nache men declined making that nearly 40-mile trek, however, because they said it was a great way to walk. Instead, they asked Colonel B. to write a letter providing a particular account of the affair and to send it along with the severed human heads to the governor. In the meantime, the seven Nache men told B. they would stay at his house and await the reply from Governor Glenn, either approving or condemning their actions. While it might seem to us that the Nache invited themselves to stay at Colonel B.'s house for a few days, in reality they were making a statement about their collective integrity. By remaining at B.'s house, they acknowledged that, in the eyes of the white man's law, they had committed a serious crime by executing the two Toms in cold blood. In light of the broader circumstances, however, they felt confident that the law would condone their actions. Whether Governor Glenn applauded or condemned the affair, they would stay put and await his decision so that no one could allege that the Nache had committed murder and fled into the wilderness. On the morning of January 25, 1745, John B. put Quill to paper and wrote a letter to Governor James Glenn in Charleston. 
Last night, he said, came seven of the Nache to my house with the two heads of the men wanted for the crimes committed the previous July. B summarized the story of how the murderers had tried to rejoin the Nache camp on the Ashapu River and how the tribe had debated which course of action to follow. Although B was not personally acquainted with the two wanted men, he told the governor that the Nache leaders had assured him that the severed human heads they presented to the colonel were indeed the heads of the two toms that were principally concerned in the murder of the Catawbas. In a postscript to his letter, Colonel B. added that the Nache men had also delivered to him the weapon of one of the toms with which he killed the Catawbas, the like weapon of the other tom they say is since lost. Having finished his letter, B. summoned an enslaved boy from his household to fetch a horse and to carry the letter, the tom's weapon, and a bag containing the two heads to the governor's house on Charleston Neck. After riding nearly 40 miles from near Jacksonboro to Charleston Neck, a journey of at least three or four hours, the unnamed enslaved boy arrived at the governor's house later in the afternoon of Friday, January 25th. Governor Glenn read the contents of John B.'s letter that day, but we don't know his initial reaction or what he did with the heads at that moment. The enslaved messenger must have stabled his horse and settled in for the night, however, because the governor did not immediately respond to B's letter. Instead, Glenn rode into town the next morning for a regularly scheduled meeting with his cabinet of advisors, collectively known as His Majesty's Council for South Carolina, convened in the council chamber in the second story of the Watch House, the present site of the old exchange building. As the first order of business on Saturday, the 26th of January, the governor shared Colonel B.'s letter with his attending advisors, including William Bull, James Kinlaw, John Cleland, William Middleton, and Richard Hill. The clerk of council dutifully transcribed all of this business into the journal of that day's proceedings, but the surviving record does not mention whether or not the governor brought the bag of heads or the Nache weapon into the council chamber for show and tell. At any rate, we do know that Governor Glenn asked his council to consider the affair and to give their best advice on how to proceed. After a brief debate, they advised Glenn to write back to Colonel B. immediately with instructions to quiet the Nache Indians by condoning their preemptive executions and assuring them that the governor would conclude this awful business. The counselors also advised Glenn to send an express rider to deliver the two severed heads to the Catawba leaders, that they may be satisfied that all pains has been taken by this government to procure justice to be done on the murderers and to give satisfaction to the Catawba nation. That's where the story ends, at least in the manuscript journal of His Majesty's Council for South Carolina but we can use our imaginations to wrap up one or two loose ends. At some point later that day, Governor James Glenn wrote a letter to John B. with instructions to assure the Nache leaders that they would not be prosecuted for what we might now call an act of justifiable double homicide. Glenn handed his letter to Colonel B.'s enslaved boy, who galloped back towards Jacksonboro 
no doubt relieved to have left the bloody bag of human heads in the governor's possession. But what happened to the Tom's weapon and the two heads? Were they immediately put into the hands of some other poor express rider who rode more than a hundred miles northward and delivered the smelly, rotting flesh full of maggots and flies to the Catawba chief? Documents on this side of the Atlantic Ocean don't provide any clues, so we have to look abroad for answers. Fortunately for us, James Glenn recorded a few more words about the conclusion of this episode in a report he sent to the British Board of Trade in December of 1751, nearly five years later. In the course of explaining the ups and downs of Indian affairs in recent South Carolina history, Glenn proudly mentioned how he had successfully diffused the potential war between the Nache and the Catawba. He recalled his conversations with the Nache king during the royal family's brief residence at the governor's house in late August of 1744, and how King Will had promised to do everything in his power to apprehend the murderous Toms. Accordingly, a few weeks after, said Glenn, but in truth, five months later, the king of the Nache sent me the heads of those two persons in a bag. I gave the heads to a surgeon to take out the brains and to put each head in a cask with spirits to preserve them till they got to the Catawba nation. So in February of 1745, some poor express rider had to gallop from Charleston to the Catawba nation near modern-day Rock Hill, South Carolina carrying two small wooden casks filled with alcohol and human heads. But how would the Catawba survivors of the July 1744 attack recognize the pickled faces of their attackers? Governor Glenn provided a ready answer to this question in his 1751 report. As it is usual among the Indians to mark their great men by various figures upon their faces and bodies, probably meaning tattoos or scarification, Glenn explained to his colleagues in London that the heads of the two toms were immediately known or recognized by the Catawba people who had made their escape from their cruelty in the summer of 1744. The delivery of the two Nache heads in early 1745 produced a general joy in the Catawba nation, said Glenn, and gave them a very high opinion of us. In a bold statement congratulating himself for advancing British control over the savage new world, the governor opined that this event represented perhaps the first instance in America where any tribe of Indians was brought to punish themselves for injury done to other Indians, and has, in my opinion, led the way to all the subsequent submissive behavior of the Catawbas. In the weeks and months that followed the conclusion of the Nache catawba affair in the winter of 1745, Governor James Glenn was preoccupied with the continuing war with France and Spain and the growing swarm of enemy privateers that plagued the Carolina coastline and crippled the flow of ships through the port of Charleston. These pressing international matters were temporarily set aside that spring, however, when the governor faced another round of urgent Native American diplomacy. In late April 1745, 
nearly 100 Cherokee men arrived in Charleston, followed immediately by a separate delegation of about two dozen Catawba warriors, who all came to town to hold formal diplomatic talks with Governor Glenn. The details of that grand state occasion we'll save for a future date, but the event provides a fitting conclusion to our story about the two Toms who lost their heads. James Glenn was a stranger to the colonies when he arrived here in December 1743 to become governor of South Carolina. Seven months later, he was obliged to summon all his political acumen to defuse a potentially explosive rift in local Indian affairs. Armed with little experience in such matters, Glenn pursued a course of action that, while novel to the native population, eventually succeeded in restoring peace between two important tribes allied to the British government. Three months after receiving the pickled heads of the two toms, the king of the Catawba, the little warrior, traveled more than a hundred miles to Charleston to thank Governor Glenn in person. The two men were strangers who had communicated through intermediaries for many months, but on the 26th of April, 1745, the governor and the little warrior shook hands at the council chamber and formed a lasting friendship that contributed to the future success of South Carolina. CCPL is your home for local history. If you'd like to learn more about our resources, discover upcoming programs, or just explore the Charleston Time Machine, check out the library's website at ccpl.org. Thanks for joining me aboard the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.